I'm here with Richard Coxford, who is the proprietor of Bytown Books in Ottawa, Canada. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you, Nigel. Perhaps you could give us uh, a little bit of background on who you are and why you're where you are. Yeah, I've always been a, a reader ever since I was young, and even in my teens started collecting books quite heavily, uh, mostly just the stuff I was interested in and read, but it, uh, it grew pretty quickly. And Science fiction? A little bit of science fiction and classics, just sort of whatever I could get my hands on. I mean, even when I was 14, 15, I was hitting the Salvation Armies and buying things up for, you know, at the time, 10 cents a quarter, that sort of thing. By the time I was 20 or then moved to Ottawa for uh, school and stuff, I had uh, amassed a fair size collection that had pretty much engulfed my bedroom and that kind of stayed home in Perth and then I started collecting even more while I was in Ottawa and dipping into some of the rare more limited edition stuff soon filled up the room I had here and then when I bought my first house with my uh, wife France it uh, grew even more and like some sort of kudzu where you know the basement had become engulfed and I had about 10 bookshelves and still had my own personal study upstairs where some of the rarer stuff was eventually she said uh, either me or the books type thing and we compromised and met halfway and I had known Otto Grazer who had owned Darlington Books and he was looking to sort of move into a full retirement and sell so when the uh, time came I ended up buying the 21 Arlington from him, and we live upstairs, and the bookstore resides on the first floor, and that was the compromise made when it comes to fine press. It grew from getting a more of an appreciation for the book and the, the pages and the binding, again, and buying heavily from Otto Grazer and his uh, Arlington books for years and years. He also is very interested in fine press and mentored you to some yeah, extent so brought me in touch with other people in the area that uh, were like-minded and had similar interests and it kind of uh, blossomed from there the first group of people off the cuff dubbed the ottawa press gang these were people in the ottawa region that had a private press themselves the one lady that ended up hosting the majority of the meetings in the beginning sue Globensky. She worked at Library and Archives Canada, and she actually was the, the person behind the Canadian Private Press's website that the Library and Archives had. So she had done all this research, and through that research had got in touch with Otto, and she had bought a good portion of his printing press and kit from him and went off to Kingston to learn how to do this trade, and there met uh, two other people, Larry Thompson and Grant Wilkins, on a course that uh, was given by Margaret Locke, who is one of the eminent teachers and historians of uh, letterpress and fine bindings and stuff in Canada. So that's where the nucleus of the group came from. You were a young, enthusiastic uh, collector. Mm-hmm. Were you put in touch with other collectors? As the, these sort of networks develop, as your feelers sort of go out looking for certain books and certain private presses that have caught your interest, then uh, certainly you meet a number of other collectors that are like-minded. So were you able to trade with them and swap, that sort of thing, or not? Not so much trade and swap. Most private press collectors are a little tight-fisted and guard their stuff. <laughs> these these books are done in limited editions. They're handmade, hand-bound most often, and they're, they're not easily come by, so most people, you know, don't have two copies or can even afford two copies being, you know, a handcrafted item. They're rather expensive, so the best you can kind of hope for is when you do start your own press that um, as you start generating some ephemera and books and broadsides and stuff that um, when you do do book fair trade shows and stuff like that, sometimes you can uh, swap with another private press printer for some stuff. But uh, as far as swapping with collectors, it's a much harder game. No comment. 
Well, let's take you back a few years to when you started off collecting fine press books, private press, or even a bit further back than that. If you could take us through the history of the private press. Sure. And then we'll get on to the actual hunt. The big question is always, what is a private press? And the, the best definition I've ever come across is a term used in the field of book collecting to describe a printing press operated as an artistic or craft-based endeavor rather than a purely commercial venture. So while private press books may be sold, the primary impetus behind the creation of these books is to have your own artwork. There's maybe a handful of private presses out there that are actually making any decent money. The origins of the private press date back to the late 17th century when the first manuals on printing started appearing with Moxon's book on printing that came out in 1693 being the first. And before that, Gutenberg had come with the movable type and all that sort of stuff in the 1450s. But it wasn't until the end of the 17th century that it had finally started to move out of the guilds and into the private. So this Mm. is where people that were interested in printing but didn't want to actually do it as their livelihood and be a member of a guild were able to start printing some of their own interests and their own creative pieces. And the, the major person that first did this was Horace Walpole, who was a political figure as well at the time, and he started the Strawberry Hill Press, which is probably one of the most important private presses in history. And this was sort of the mid-18th century. He printed poetry by his friends like Thomas Gray. He printed his own essays on art. One of the, the big collector's items that he printed was actually his whole Strawberry Hill home. He had cataloged and then private printed. So you can actually see every single item that was in his house in these catalogs. Porcelain and exactly. furniture. Right and down to his teapot and, <laughs> and you know his little pipe carousel. So for people that are Walpole collectors, it's a, a pretty big thing. I do have actually one book from the Strawberry Hill Press here that I can show you. It's they're getting tougher and tougher to come by, but... We'll give our listeners a, a verbal picture. Yeah. Unfortunately, the book has been rebound as the, the original covers have long since left, but it's a catalogue of engravers born in England. His friends' commentaries on the life works of various printers, but as you can tell, like the high-quality paper, I mean, this book is over 250 years old and there's no real foxing no. or chipping and some very nice plates that were made for it, engravings, and that's where you can feel the embossing and the, the the bite of the print in the type and this is a nice example of the type of stuff the strawberry hill press was doing when he wasn't doing sort of the the poetry or some of his own short stories and stuff. it smacks of the purse without which there's no way you could do this sort of thing right? exactly and that actually leads into what the next phase in the private press these were private presses but walpole was certainly not doing the printing he was from the upper crust, and, and he would have definitely had other people working at his Strawberry Hill Press doing a, the majority of the work for him. The first proprietor printer press was actually by William Blake, the famous poet. When he was writing his poetry, he was also doing a great deal of illuminations and artwork. Engravings. And, and Exactly. Yeah. Unfortunately, the commercial printers of the day didn't want to have to deal with illustration or illumination or anything like that. So he was forced to open his own print shop with his brother in the 1780s, and this provided one of the first ever 
venues for illuminated manuscripts that were printed or illustrated books. They did their own, but they, they also were open for business. They were, yeah. Unfortunately, not, not a very good businessman, and uh, it turned out to be a dismal failure for the most part. After Blake, a number of other little presses popped up, but it really started to move when there was new technologies for illustration and typography and bookbinding and stuff like that. And what happened was almost kind of like what you see now with the print-on-demand scene where people can get their own poetry or short story or whatever they want short printed. Run. Yeah. There was sort of this parlor press scene that grew, and this was because the printing presses became more and more affordable. People, if the commercial printers wouldn't pick up their stuff, they could easily afford a little parlor press and in a few months or whatever of kind of on-the-side work be able to put out their great works of poetry. Very similar to blogs now, where yeah. you'd get an audience. I suppose what they would do is manually distribute... Yeah, or they would give them... It was much more of a vanity press, yeah. so it's similar to, yeah, like the print-on-demand vanity presses that you see today. They would give these out to friends or, you know, try and sell them if they could. Unfortunately, these people were looking to just get their stuff out, so the typography behind it and the, you know, the, the artistic element that people like Walpole had had, and particularly William Blake and his illustrated edition fell by the wayside. So they were just basically concerned about getting their content out to the world, not the way it was presented. Yeah, so they would just go with whatever paper was at hand and affordable and whatever type was available, and they didn't look to merge and create something. It was just much more of, as you said, trying to crank out a personal piece of vanity as opposed to create a, an artistic piece of work. Or a piece of political propaganda. Yeah. yeah. From there, we hit the Industrial Revolution, which saw this parlor press thing go large-scale, like the way you see many of the books today, where even 20, 30 years ago, first edition printings might have been a 1,000 to 5,000. Now, even a first book from a first author, the publisher wants to, to gamble a little bit. It's 15,000 to 50,000. Complete economies of scale type approach and, and mass market selling, which a lot of the Industrial Revolution did as well. Put books into the hands of the public cheaply, but at the sacrifice of paper and the overall quality of the work itself. As a counter to that is when you see the arts and crafts movement start. Between the 1880s and just before World War One, and this is where there's the craftsman, you know, must put his life and effort and take pride in the work he's doing. A backlash against this mass production. You're starting to see that again now. As I talked to you before about the, the Ottawa Press Gang, it started with a nucleus of about five or six of us, and already now we're up to probably close to 20 people in just over three years with about 15 presses in Ottawa between us. So there's a, an ever-expanding interest as a backlash to the ebook or the, a technology-centric society, so people are looking to go back and, and try these crafts and arts with their hands. It's a bit like the bi-local movement, eating food that's grown within... Yeah, kind of the, the counter-globalization <laughs> approach. Yeah. yeah. The big person in the uh, arts and crafts movement was William Morris. He was a, a designer on many levels, primarily started out as wallpaper and mm -hmm, tile, and then he moved into lithography, and finally he started up the Kelmscott Press, which is probably one of most famous for now, which created just beautiful, beautiful works 
heavily illustrated. He had specific type cut for many of them. In the end, he produced over, I think, about 50 books over the course of about a decade from his press, all limited edition and on high-quality paper using you know high-quality printing techniques with a very, very keen eye for typography and, and artistic design in the works. The big one that people are most familiar with is what's called the Kelmscott Chaucer, the magnum opus of the press. This is beautiful. It's hand and soul by Dante Gabriel Rossetti. It's a ragged edge and thick paper, rag yeah. content. And the illustrated caps for each new page and paragraph and, you know, the, the nice multicolor marginal notations that are in there add to the artistic appeal of the book as opposed to, you know, just having sheet after sheet of text. And there's a nice, what they call, thumbage here. I can mm -hmm. fit my full thumb on both sides of the yeah, page. Yeah, because the idea, too, is that a book is meant to be looked at two pages at a time. So when the book is open, the margins should be equal all the way around and you're actually looking at you know a square block of text in the middle of the two pages as opposed to sort of reading it a page at a time like we do now. This is your own copy? Yeah. So let's go back to the 1890s, the turn of the century. Yeah, so one of the, the major people that Morris influenced was Albert Hubbard, who founded the Roy Crofter Society down in Aurora, New York. That's just near Buffalo. Yeah. Taking on the, the idea of the arts and crafts movement, he ended up starting his own printing press there, but not just the printing press, but creating a whole community of people that worked with metal and wood, wood. and all furniture. sorts of furniture and, and ceramics. And um, by 1910, I think there was like over 500 people in this arts and crafts village <laughs> just kind of... That's like a crazy c commune, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, which is partly why sometimes um, Hubbard is criticized a bit. One, because a lot of the stuff that he was publishing was his own commentary. His own essays, journeys, his, his little journeys. His own interpretations of the Bible, even. And the second criticism was that uh, how private a, a press is it when there's 500 people there. <laughs> and chances are Hubbard didn't really touch the press all that much. Um, he was an extremely wealthy man. Very much loved the idea of the arts and crafts movement, but unlikely that he, he got into it himself all that much. They had churned out quite a few books. There's a, plenty of collectors of this sort of stuff. We get emails all the time asking if we have Roycroft stuff, and we have a few English authors' little journeys right um, there. Now, this is a suede covering, isn't it? Yeah. Imitation of Kelmscott-style borders and stuff on the title page. Many of them hand-painted. Oh, this one's actually signed by our friend... I then have one that goes a little bit later, and now we've moved down to a, a regular paper binding. I'm still using quality papers, and the book has gotten a little bit smaller. As I said, paper covers, no hand-painted illumination around the title page or anything like that. And then they even went into sort of a cheaper edition when the whole series was done and started binding many of them together. And it yeah. turned out to be a 12-volume set that then have. 1920s kind of faux leather type covers. Um, and I happen to have that set. So. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice set, but uh, definitely not the same quality as, it's for sale. <laughs> as the uh, original leather-bound ones. What about the, the quality of this uh, versus the quality of the Kelmscott? Similar. I mean, you can tell by his use of the margins, his use of notation in the margins, by the style of the yeah, engravings. Yeah. He's very much copying the Kelmscott. The Kelmscott Press influenced a number of presses. The Doves Press is another one where they've kept very much the ideal 
enjoy the arts and crafts, but were also very heavily influenced by Kelmscott. And yeah, Hubbard absolutely adored William Morris. Mm. You can see it throughout pretty much any of the Roy Crofter stuff. Hubbard strikes me as uh, having quite an ego. You know, this particular little journey's English authors is Samuel Johnson, but uh, but again, he's quite prominent there with his own signature. Is he the author of these? He is, yeah. Yeah, okay. that, uh, that makes sense. Those journeys were essays written by him as he traveled to the you know homes and, and towns where these great authors lived and thrived. So not quite as expensive. Certainly not, no. The Kelmscott I have is probably one of the more affordable ones that's out there, and you're still looking at four figures generally. For something any, like any this. Any Kelmscott item, there might, yeah, you might find a steal a little lower, but I mean, to find a Kelmscott book under $500, you've, you've definitely got yourself a find. Where Roy Crofter stuff, because they had put so much of it out, even some of the nicer Roy Crofter stuff you can still get for $100 or yeah, less. Yeah, that's what you've got on, on these or under. You mentioned that there was a, a number. Dove's Press. And then, obviously, they were, there was a lull during World War One, and then came in with force shortly after the First World War, and that's where you saw some of the other major presses that come to mind when you think of the private press, like the Nonsuch Press, the Golden Cockerel, the Greggy Nog Press, all of these started sort of in the, the early 1920s, and beautiful illustrations, particularly from the Golden Cockerel. The woodcuts. With, yeah, with Gibbings and Ravelous. And Eric Gill. Eminent... Uh, wood engravers of the time and exactly just wonderfully illustrated books and again still limited edition high quality stuff there are golden cockerel books that were hand set but no illustrations simple paper binding you can get them for you know 20 25 dollars you can still get them now oh there's plenty of them yeah because they did editions up in like 500 750 range by today's standards, still somewhat limited, but without the illustrations and something that makes them desirable, pretty readily available. Cheering to the, the yeah, collector. To, to a collector that's just looking to, to get their foot in the door or to have a, a shelf of a, of a few samples from each press type thing, there's definitely a, a number of affordable ones by some of the early 20th century presses. But that's sort of where the the range goes because the Golden Cockle Press was also the one that did some pretty important pieces such as the Four Gospels, Canterbury Tales. These books now are up in the thousands, if not tens of thousands. Now, would they just make up their mind that we feel that Chaucer could use a, a new edition? What drove the decisions that they took to, to produce particular authors? Um, a lot of the authors they did were small English authors. In fact, the Golden Cockle Press was one of my favorite because a long time ago, one of my first collecting venues was E.E. E. Coppard, who was an English short story writer sort of between the wars, and he couldn't get his book of poetry or some of his first books of short stories published in much more than just, you know, one at a time in journals and magazines and stuff like that. So he actually helped Hal Taylor in the beginning to start the Golden Cockerel Press to publish his work. So the first book off the press was Adam and Eve and Pinch Me, printed by A.E. Coppard, <laughs> found by him, written by him, you know, and they went on to print a number of his books, and later on, you know, as the press grew in uh, fame and notoriety, more and more of Coppard's stuff was produced by them in limited editions with wonderful illustrations and much higher level of typography and uh, quality of paper and bindings and stuff like that. So that's sort of where my interest really grew in the fine press was collecting A.E. Copper, trying to find as many as I could, and then 
Thanks to eBay, I stumbled across some of these golden cockerel AE coppers and bought them, and when they came, just absolutely fell in love with them and really narrowed my focus on the, the fine press side of things as uh, my appreciation grew. Coppered was picked up by Jonathan Cape and Alfred Knopf in the U.S., so those were the ones that are sort of more easily findable and readily yeah. available. Now it was, you know, these vellum-bound ones that Cape did and some of the illustrated ones by uh, the Golden Cockerel, and they had done a few other small presses for some of these books like Cherry Ripe, all beautifully illustrated. That's what really sort of drew me in was these early 20th century presses and, and some of the work they had done for some of the authors I had really admired. From there, after, particularly after talking with Otto Grazer, mentored by him a bit, he had been really in tune with the Canadian private press scene since the early 80s. He had known a lot of the, and been buying a lot of the private press stuff from them. He also ran his own private press in the back room here for a while called the Black Squirrel Press and had done uh, some broadsides and chapbooks with some, at the time, budding poets, local Ottawa authors. So from him, I grew to appreciate the, the Canadian side of some of the major presses in Canada, like the Barbarian Press and Frog Hollow. And, and they, uh, as far as I can tell, can stand with any, any other presses in the world. Certainly, particularly the Barbarian Press. On the, the West Coast, the Heavenly Monkey proprietor there, Roland Milroy, just outstanding quality work. We uh, make sure, to, as the the bookstore now, we um, we order in copies of his stuff whenever we can. What about on the East Coast? There's there's Gasparo on the East Coast. Also running the Goat Press. Great uh, name. Yeah. Well, they're all great names. They also take sort of a very playful approach. One book, I think it was called Three Servings, where it's uh, a small book, but it's actually done up in like a linen bag, so it looks like it's a bag of of food, kind of the one that's here. It's an old East Canadian folklore tale called Peg Bearskin. So they've actually got it bound in a faux bearskin. <laughs> but as you can tell, again, like very high quality yeah. papers being used. The frontispiece on the Peg Bearskin is what about a an eight by ten wood engraving, which you know would take numerous hours to do by whoever uh, engraved it. Illustrations by uh, Ellie Cohen. Another very talented printer out there is Tara Bryan, and she's been there for about 20 years now, I believe. She's out on the rock, is she? She's on the rock, yeah. yeah. Got a, a few of hers here as well. She uh, She's done a number of accordion-style books. Three deep, kind of manifold almost. Yeah, yeah. so that one's a, based on the Queen of Hearts, so when you open it up, it's like an old medieval-style diorama theater. Where are we now in our history? We're pretty well up to the current the, times. The big people that I think influenced the very modern private press in Canada would be Will Reuter in Toronto with his Alaquando Press. He's been going strong for a number of years and just actually hit his 100th book, Margaret Locke, who I had mentioned before, put on a show at the uh, university in Kingston highlighting these 100 books worth of work he had done over almost 40 years. He's still uh, active? He's still active. Whereabouts is he out of? Toronto, just north mm -hmm. of Toronto, I believe. He's still going at it and still making beautiful books. Again, another Canadian private press that any time we hear of new books coming 
out of them we try and get at least a couple copies you know, one for me one for the store type thing <laughs> and another very very influential press was the pool hall press which was down in the toronto area as well and based on the name of bill pool who taught quite a bit of letterpress and also had uh, a press for a number of years until he had passed away he was the genius behind the Grimsby Ways Goose, and a Ways Goose is a gathering of press printing press printers. Like a murder of crows, it's a Ways Goose. Yeah, of exactly. Printers. This Grimsby Ways Goose has gone on now for over 30 years. Got a, an example here, and what they do is they create an anthology every time. So calls go out, and anybody that does private press printing or illustrations or creative works can submit a signature and what usually happens is they put about 120 of these books out as a keepsake, a way to raise some funds. I guess throughout, some do and some don't sign their work, is that it? Most, I think, tend to sign their work and usually scribble in whatever copy it is of however many they've printed. I have a copy of, it's called Wrong Phone. Yes. Number six. Yeah. And it's it's very, very similar. It's a tribute to Carl Dare. It's exactly the same idea. Yeah, I... You've got one those as well. As well. Oh, yeah. So I've got number seven. What the the wrong fonts were were a collection of pieces done by various private printers at the time, and it was during the '60s and '70s when these wrong fonts were being done that the real private press movement in Canada began. There had been a couple of landmark presses early in Canada's history, like the Golden Dog Press and the work by Robert Reed. Uh, the Nevermore Press, when he worked with uh, Takeo Tanabe and had done a, a number of very nicely printed books. But it wasn't until sort of the late 60s, early 70s that printers in the Toronto area mainly started getting together and doing these uh, these wrong fonts that the momentum really started to build, at least in, in Ontario, where my focus narrows even more. So let's focus on that then. Let's just say that someone listening to this, some book lover or someone who's always enjoyed being surrounded by books gets bitten by this bug. What's the best thing that they can do? Either try and attend the Grimsby Ways Goose because their world will just completely open up from there, getting to talk to all the printers, understand the mechanics behind it, getting to see a bevy of different works, different styles, different approaches to printing. Where's Grimsby exactly? Down outside of Toronto a little bit. On the 401? or? think so, yeah. Yeah, okay. So it's close to Toronto. Yeah. Do they haul their uh, presses along with them? Um, some people do have yeah. uh, smaller printing presses that are portable. I mean, most printing presses are, are quite hefty. I mean, yeah. I have <laughs> what's considered a small printing press in mine still weighs probably over 500 pounds. So, right. Um, but you can have tabletop presses and stuff like that, which uh, a number of them do. George Walker, who we uh, touched on, has done some amazing work over the past probably about 30 years almost now. That he's one of the eminent wood engravers in in Canada. He does book arts fairs or shows. He brings a little tiny uh, handheld printing press and he can print out little cards or little illustrations right on the spot for you to give people an idea of how the impression's made and how it all works. And he's often working on a, on a wood engraving on the spot so you can see the whole idea go onto the block, get cut out, get printed. So by attending these ways gooses, and are they typically, what, in the summertime are they? Or? Yeah, usually one's done every early summer, late springish. 
And I know now that they've started a Waze Goose out east as well at the Gasparo Press. They've done it maybe two or three times now. So again, if you're on the, the east coast, there's a venue there. In any city, I mean, if you just use Google or just kind of poke around the internet, there's plenty of other book fairs as well. For instance, in Ottawa, here the Canadian Book Artisan and Bookbinders Guild, they've now started a book arts fair that takes place every June at the Library and Archives. Then as far as the collecting of it goes, you would want to look at a few different presses, see the kind of Im- images that they like to use that would appeal to you, obviously. I mean, that's that, that's the most important thing. Mm-hmm. The most beautiful thing about collecting private press is is that there's just so many avenues. You know, if you, if you collect an author, then you collect an author. Where mm-hmm. if you collect private press, it's up to you to define what sort of scope you want. For me, it was collecting through an author first, and my scope has now been limited to Canada, primarily in Ontario. But even by doing that, I know of a couple collectors who collect Canadian private press, but they've limited their scope to only books, because private presses will do a number of bits of ephemera, greeting cards, broadsides, little poetry chapbooks, um, you know, just single little signatures like you saw in the Waze Goose there. So there's all these different little tidbits aspects. So if you wanted, you could find a press that you really like. Um, The Pool Hall Press is a press that I greatly enjoy. Their technique was very playful without always looking for perfection. I enjoy that kind of homemade, hands-on feel where other people like the very fine, fine press end of things so they don't want to see bits of ink missed or, you know, not a a fully deep impression or, you know, a page that might be slightly kilted. Where would they go to to find that? Some of the the major Canadian presses, Barbarian, Gasparo, Margaret Locke down in Kingston when she was printing. She's also a wonderful, wonderful wood cut artist. There's more on the side of perfectionist. These various presses, there's enough of a range that they can cater to all sorts of different tastes from the crazy splashed all over the place to the the very precise. With any particular press as well, there always is ephemera and greeting cards that may have gone out and stuff. So if you're really keen on collecting one particular press, it could very well take you a lifetime to find all the things they printed because they might have done only 20 greeting cards to their friends for, for one Christmas. Tracking down one of those could take years and years, and it's not just a simple, you know, go on ABE Books or, you know, Amazon, punch in an author's name, and here's ten copies, pick which one you want. It's what, digging around in bookstores? It's it's digging around in bookstores, talking to people, getting to know other people that collect these sort of things, trying to find little pockets of them that other collectors have had and relinquished. Mm -hmm. Detective work. Yeah, it's the true collectible the one that uh, I think probably why it draws a lot of collectors because it's stuff you don't see. For example, um, just before you came, just for fun, I went on ABE Books to see what copies of wrong fonts they might have, and there's only one listed. I believe they did eight years' worth of wrong fonts doing maybe around 100 issues of each, so there's 800 mm-hmm. of these folders out there of collected works by you know Great Ontario and Canadian printers, and there's only one available for purchase right now. So that just tells you that there's plenty hiding. and uh, Plenty of demand for them. Plenty of demand, and, and those that do get them tend to hang on to them. They're a treat when they 
turn up and you can <laughs> and you can find them. Um, one of the early Golden Dog ones was an illustrated edition of Macbeth, and I remember the McGarrens turned up a copy, and it was one of the first ones that I had ever seen, and they uh, had put $600 on it in their catalog, and I called, and there had already been three other people saying wow. that they wanted it, one of which was, you know, Library and Archives Canada, another was the uh, National Gallery at the time when they were divided because of the illustrations in it, and... You know, some private collectors are called, so within, you know, and I'm in Ottawa, so the, it got to me pretty quick in the mail, and just in the area of Ottawa, there was three people before me that had interest in this book and had snapped it up before I could get to it, so it just shows you how infrequently as well yeah. that these books turn up. Our store has become known as the place, at least in Ottawa, if not Ontario, if not almost eastern side of Canada, that letterpress can be found. For example, um, The Heavenly Monkey will only sell to book dealers for the most part because he well and Norway just doesn't like having to deal with, you know, people trying to purchase individual copies on a regular basis. So he yeah. and he does such beautiful, high quality, exquisite work that his editions are sold out to even book dealers and private subscribers before uh, before they even go out to market. Mm. And we're the only shop east of B C that, that carries his stuff. So we sort of slowly build up our, our name and reputation for having these uh, private press, high-quality, limited editions. Another avenue is our bookstore has a blog, so anytime we get new private press books in, we make sure to take plenty of photographs. And, and Richard, what's the uh, address on that? Oh, our website is www.bytownbookshop.ca. The latest uh, blog that I had just done was a... Um, a folder of broadsides of Al Purdy poems that were printed by a gentleman, Alex Widden, on the West Coast. And these are three poems that Purdy wrote just before he passed away, and they were in a folder on his bedside in the hospital. And um, his, uh, I believe it was his wife, approached this gentleman, Alex Widden, to, to see if for Al Purdy Day, which took place back in April, if he'd be willing to uh, do a fine letterpressed edition of these final three poems. And... Uh, he agreed and created a, a beautiful set of poems with a preface and a excellent uh, wood engraving by Jim Rimmer, who is one of the, the famous uh, Canadian type cutters and, and printers from the West Coast. So one of the newest things that we've got in recently, um, we regularly get in stuff from presses across Canada as I continue to put my feelers out and get in touch with as many presses as possible. One avenue that I've used is I'm a contributing editor for the Alcoin Society's magazine, Amphora. So again, if you're a collector looking to get some more info and stuff, um, the Amphora magazine and Devil's Artisan, which is a magazine put out by the Porcupine's Quill on the book arts, those are sort of the two major avenues in Canada. In the Amphora magazine, I do a um, an article called Limited Editions every issue, which highlights three to four presses and the uh, limited edition work that they've put out recently. Uh, just in, in winding down here, one thing that's very encouraging is that there is this demand, because one of the complaints about modern first edition market is that no one really cares about Canadian literature, but it seems quite the opposite in the case of the fine presses in Canada. Fine presses, or at least uh, a fine quality book, might be where the the book trade is moving. You know, your history and and encyclopedic type knowledge is obviously already on the internet, and people, you know, don't even consult encyclopedias anymore. They don't hunt for you know books about 
British history or anything like that. You know, there's the, the few collector areas and, and antiquarian type stuff that some people might still hunt after, but as far as the content is concerned, most of it I think is heading online um, and fiction is sort of moving that way even faster now. So I think that the collecting side, people still really like to have a physical object in their hands, sort of the same as what you saw as a, as a counter to the Industrial Revolution. I think the private presses are becoming more prominent. There's more and more people being interested in private presses as kind of a, a counter to the, the computer revolution that's going on and how everything is being digitized. When you look at a company like Don Black's, they've been in business for years and years now down in Toronto selling type and presses and stuff. Um, even maybe 10, 15 years ago, you would be given a press. If you'd be willing to take it off somebody's property out of their barn or some print shop downtown that for some reason had an old jobbing press in the back, if you would just physically remove it from their premises, you could have it. And that's not happening anymore. Now it costs hundreds of dollars for even just a small press. For a good size proving press, you're looking at thousands of dollars. That's just showing the, the demand yeah. for mm -hmm. presses now where these things you know, used to be uh, sent to scrapyards because just the cast iron was worth more than the machine itself. And now you're seeing the, the complete opposite where people are actively seeking. I mean, almost at least once every two, three weeks, there's somebody that comes in asking about it because they see, you know, we've got a wall full of private press stuff here and a number of books behind us, and they're interested, and they want to learn how to do it. I Participate, yeah. Yeah, and they're, I've given, I have a printing press in the back. It's uh, from the 1890s. I printed a few things off myself, but over the uh, past couple of years that the store's been open, I've taught maybe around eight or nine people now already how to... Uh, do letterpress printing, all from you know somebody wanting to do it because they just don't want to laser print off their wedding invitation mm -hmm. to people that are now part of our Ottawa Press Gang, and they've gone down and they've you know taken bookbinding courses now, and they've gone to Kingston and taken Margaret Locke's full weekend course as well. She does a, a two-day course in Kingston on printing and the finer details of typography and the mechanics behind it. I tend to give a little more rudimentary crash course over a, a Sunday afternoon and leave the high-level education of private press to Margaret Locke. So we uh, we do well together. She only takes about three or four students at a time, so she's very hands-on. I know about five or six people now that have taken her course and all have come back very pleased and rearing to, to get printing and get their own presses. It's very, very encouraging. Mm -hmm. Thank you for taking us through the history and giving us a, an exciting, enthusiastic uh, endorsement for collecting this kind of book, but more than a book. Yeah. I've been speaking with Richard Coxford, the proprietor of Bytown Books in Ottawa. Thanks again. Oh, thank you very much.